0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Thank you for returning to our series on the second half of American History. For podcast episode number six in the fifth podcast in this series on u.s history two, we looked at why the south lagged behind the north after the american civil war we looked at the role that woman would play in the new south and a second take on race issues and racial relations that we also looked at with the catastrophic lynching becoming an epidemic truly in the South after the American Civil War. We examined the infamous court case of Plessy versus Ferguson with the contradiction that separate but equal is actually something that should be achieved or could be achieved. And then finally looking at some of the African-American leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. In this sixth podcast series, of the sixth uh, episode in this series, we're going to look at now industry immigrants and city development from the years between 1877, the last year that Reconstruction was a federal policy, through the 23-year period to 1900. The first, before we can unpack anything about the reason for the demand for immigrants and what the immigrants had be coming to America for, before we can look at any of the industries or even the development within the cities themselves, we have to recognize arguably one of the greatest achievements and possibly greatest inventions in the 1800s that would ultimately be impacting life immediately then, as well as having an astounding effect on human life moving forward. And that is the application of electricity to the element tungsten, to create what we call the light bulb. That, of course, being with Thomas Edison. Edison, however, had a lot of resistance. Number one, there was a group of people that didn't think he had it in him or that it could possibly be achieved. What really would be the possibility? How likely would agitating electrons applied to a filament of of tungsten, a filament of anything, how could that possibly produce light? But Edison, as we know, he wouldn't be deterred. And ultimately in 1879, his invention finally was successful with the creation of the tungsten light bulb. Please know that by the time Thomas Edison came across the element tungsten, which he had tested previously, but in a different way. By the time he had the successful light bulb working in his laboratory, he had made over 6,000 attempts with different materials and different ways of charging the materials to see if it could produce a continuous source of light until tungsten proved to be the successful element. But please know that again, if if it's that successful, I mean, if it was that much of a positive development, why don't we know about Edison more? Why do we not? Why is Edison even not even on a higher pedestal than he already is? Part of it is because what we tend to forget about the traditional incandescent bulb or the traditional tungsten burning bulb, if you're not familiar with it, and or forgot about it, if you still have, as so many people now have LEDs and other forms of lights, which use far, far less electricity to produce the same quantity of light, if you have the opportunity have a tungsten bulb, light bulb, turn it on and get close to it. Leave it on for, you know, maybe 30 seconds or longer and then get close to it. And what do you sense, besides a lot of bright light, especially if it's a 60 watt bulb, but what do you sense? What does your body pick up besides light? Get as close as you can without touching the bulb and close your eyes so you're not affected by the light. And what are you feeling? Yeah, you're feeling an intense amount of heat. And that was the crit- the criticism with the light bulb. Edison, you didn't create light nearly as you created an artificial source of heat but that wasn't going to dissuade the average reaction to the light bulb. It was lightweight. Yes, it was fragile. Yes, it was dangerous, but it was lightweight and it produced an awful lot of light compared to the same amount of candles that one would have to light to produce the same quantity of light. As a result, to try to demonstrate his new invention Edison planned in Menlo park, New Jersey, he planned what is arguably one of the greatest New Year's Eve parties in all of American history. On December 31st, at his laboratory in Menlo Park, Edison had invited as many people as possible to come to his laboratory, come to his house, and see one of his latest and greatest inventions. So what would draw people there? Why go to his house versus any other for New Year's Eve? is because Edison had a weird kind of a message at the bottom of his invitations. And that was, nobody is to bring candles. You see, in the 1800s and beyond, it was a courtesy that when you went to somebody's house after dark, you brought a set of candles. Even if they said, don't bring anything, you still at least brought a full-size candle or two. Now, I'm not talking about the Yankee candles so that we can get the fresh scent, especially if we don't like what the host is cooking. No, and not for that reason. It's the fact that candles were expensive, and they burned relatively quickly. So if your host was gracious enough to have you over, the least you could do would be to bring a candle or two so that they could help continue to distribute the light without incurring a huge expense on their part. And yet, here's Edison's invitation saying to come after dark, but do not bring any candles. Candles not allowed. Candles not permitted. Just that interest, just that curiosity sparked, no pun intended, people's interest to show up even if they originally didn't want to go. And people were amazed at all of the lights on display and none of them were being powered by any form of gas. It was using this relatively new invention of electricity applied to a filament of tungsten, which burned so hot that when put in a clear container, glass container, it released this light for them to be able to see all around them. Now, getting this product out to the people could be the challenge in and of itself after all the average homeowner knows that after the sun goes down i know how many candles i need to keep lit in order to keep my room with the amount of intense light that i'm that i desire why would i bother bringing these dangerous wires into my house to power this light bulb and That's the reason why initially the way the, the light bulb was rated is in what they call a 60-watt bulb. Initially, it was the 60-candle-watt, meaning a drawback or a tieback to a candle with how many candles you'd have to light within a given area to equal the amount of light emitted from one bulb. You see, to push a new product into people's hands... Sometimes you have to use old terminology so they understand what the new technology can do. The same thing applies to engines. Why would somebody, why would a farmer who's been using horses all his or her life and that of their ancestors to plow the same field on the same farm that has been in the family for generations, why would I want not want to use these two or three horses and use this loud ugly, dirty engine instead. And again, the inventor, the salesman would have to talk in the farmer's language and say, well, that small engine, as small as it seems, actually has more power than five of your horses. And that's where we would derive the term horsepower from. Again, using an old term to be able to sell new technology. The actual laboratory where Edison discovered this uh, this element of tungsten and applying it to agitating electrons, low electricity, that actual lab has been restored practically to its entirety and can be seen by the commoner or travelers that have the opportunity to go up to our state of Michigan to see in uh, Edison's laboratory in at the Henry Ford Museum just outside Detroit, Michigan. In fact, not only did Henry Ford rebuild the lab exactly as he remembered it, because remember Henry Ford once worked for Thomas Edison, but Henry Ford had it restored to the point that when Edison came up, a much older man by this point, after Henry Ford paid him massive amount of money, To have Edison's laboratory painstakingly disassembled and then moved to Detroit to be reassembled exactly again the way that Edison put it together himself and built it himself. When Edison came upstairs to the laboratory, to the second floor where all of his inventions took place, he was astounded at everything around him to the point of almost getting dizzy or losing his balance, and he had to sit in a chair which he then turned in the chair to look all around him. As tears came to his eyes, the way a laboratory that he once thought was lost to the ages had now actually been preserved by one of his employees. And because of that, when Thomas Edison got out of the chair to go back downstairs, Henry Ford demanded that his workers nail the chair exactly to the spot on the floor where Edison once sat. And, the fact that Henry Ford did this tugs at my uh, my personal heartstrings as well, because I know what it's like to love a particular job so much and have respect for a group of people that you worked with so much that you would do everything in your power to recreate it as an adult, as that's what I have done with the resources available to me.
1: And a job that
0: I had in the southwest side of Chicago at a pharmacy called White's Pharmacy, I was arguably one of the last Americans to work in a pharmacy at the back of the store behind one of the perhaps last working soda fountains that could be found anywhere in America in the back of an actual working pharmacy that was open for business and licensed to licensed to sell prescription medicated drugs. It was a job that I started in 1987, and I absolutely loved my full two years and nine months there to the point that decades later, I wrote a manuscript, which I'm currently trying to publish about my years there. And that 58,000 word manuscript describes some of the greatest people that America has ever produced, but also the trials and tribulations which they endured. And I pepper the manuscript with a number of funny stories that truly make me even smile to this day as I think back to them and so many of the people that I once worked with, that almost all of them who are gone today. Later, after writing it, I also built a 187th scale model of not only the pharmacy itself, but the actual soda fountain inside. And how ironic that not long after that, Word comes to me in Northeast Ohio that the actual soda fountain that I worked behind was up for being able to be moved or sold because the customer that bought it when the pharmacy closed in 1990, I ended up buying or that he ended up buying and had it for 30 years. I ended up buying back from him in the summer of 2020 and I've restored that soda fountain because when I went out there in uh, North Central Illinois to pick up the soda fountain, the man that bought it never did anything with lights or plumbing the way it was when I worked there and it's how I remember working it. So when I got it back to my home in Northeast Ohio, much thanks to my much, much loved uh, wife, Elizabeth, and my kids for helping out in their different ways that they could, The soda fountain is now fully functional, including the working plumbing and electricity, exactly as I remember it, over a third of a century prior. So what Edison had done for him by his employee, Henry Ford, again, I can understand it. And if any of my listeners also have a job or had a job that you once loved with every possible part of your being, you'd understand why Henry Ford did it. That said, What do we do now with this new found light bulb? Well, first off, it was further freeing human dependence on mother nature, because with the application of electricity and the light bulb, the world could now operate at night. And in addition to those smelly, ugly, as many called combustible engines in addition now to engines that were powered by gasoline and other forms of petroleum we now had electricity that could power motors that were a lot quieter and often were extremely clean in the sense of their negative impact on on the environment so electricity opened up truly a series of doors that one could argue still continues to open up doors well into the 21st century So what does that mean now for corporate America? Well, now corporate America was beginning to think outside of the box as well, is now electricity could assist with motors and engines in reproducing what only at one time human hands or animal power could do. Now people and inventors, entrepreneurs would be building for the foreseeable future, not just for their own lives, but long after their own God calls them home. And that's what gives rise to the corporation as well as its benefits. In fact, to put this into perspective, people will be now making so much money that they truly cannot spend all of it in their lifetime. In fact, the term millionaire comes about in the 1800s, largely because of the way humans can now reproduce what human hands could do through the use of motors and engines, and now be able to operate around the clock due to Edison's light bulb. So now they also had to protect themselves though, and that's what gives rise, as I say here, to the corporation and its benefits. A corporation continues on long after the founder or the founders die. Can you imagine buying, just to stick with Henry Ford, but can you imagine buying the latest at this time, the latest model truck or car only to go for parts and find out that the Ford dealership closed and the Ford's parts counter closed. Why? Well, because Henry Ford died. So when he died, boom, everything died with it. People would not spend an inordinate amount of money for these large objects. If it turned out that once the owner, the entrepreneur, the founder died, boom, that was the end of the story. The corporations continue on, which is a good thing for consumers because we can continue to utilize those objects and the parts and even buy successor items long after again the founder or founders die. But what about for the entrepreneur? Does he or she gain from what they call incorporating? Absolutely they do. It limits their own personal liability. You see, if in the time that Henry Ford was still alive and you had a Model T and you got into a car accident with the Model T and everybody that investigated the accident said, That wasn't the fault of the person that hit you. That wasn't the fault of you, the driver. That was the fault of a flaw in the model of that particular model year, Model T. So the fault really needs to be laid at the feet of Ford Motor Company. Notice I said Ford Motor Company. I did not say Henry Ford. You, the consumer, could sue Ford Motor Company for as much as you wanted. Didn't mean you're gonna get anything. But you could sue for as much as you wanted. But let's assume you were so successful somehow that you wiped out Ford Motor Company. You forced them into bankruptcy. Great. But you're still not going to touch Henry Ford or the millions that he had accrued in his lifetime because the corporation put a moat, a chasm between him and his company. So that's part of the reason why there's a benefit as well for the entrepreneurs. And of course, it goes much, much beyond that, well above my pay grade, about what I know about corporations and corporate law within the United States, not only from its inception, but all the way to 2021. That, as we know, literally can comprise of a full semester class in and of itself. But let's continue to talk about now the rise of the corporations, because they not only, if they had the wherewithal to invent new types of items. And new things that the average commoner would like to use in their daily life. You know that that same intelligent mind is going to be tried. Th- is also going to try to think outside of the box and how to maximize their profits, how to minimize their expenses. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the American way. It's the way of capitalism. But there are, it turns out, wrong ways to go about that. In other words, what entrepreneurs figured out how to do very, very quickly was to try to integrate their lines of business. And there's two ways that one can integrate. The first is what they call vertical integration, and the second is horizontal integration. Vertical is legal, horizontal is not. Let's unpack that, what I mean by that. Vertical integration is where the inventor not only created his or her product, but then goes out of their way to try to own every element that goes into the creation of the project. To put this into a clear example, let's go back once again to Henry Ford, dust him off a little bit because we got to use him for one more example here. But at one time, Henry Ford made an attempt to own the manufacturing facility, plants, or areas that went into his Ford motor cars. Henry Ford wanted to buy everything he needed from nobody. He wanted to own everything that produced the elements that were comprised to make up an automobile under the name of Ford Motor Company. And Henry Ford was darn close to being 100% successful of that. He bought the rubber plants in South America. He bought the glass manufacturing plants for his windshields and windows. He bought the other types of plants that produced the steel, that produced the wood, that produced all these other things, everything that goes into the automobile. And at a birthday party in the 1940s, Henry Ford was toasted as beyond the example of the successful businessman who learned how to figure out how to buy or create on his own everything that goes into his own automobiles. And everybody gave him a toast that he had a nice big smile until somebody, we don't know who, on the other side of the room said, Well, yeah, but he still has to pay the transportation CEOs to get his products to him and get his finished products out to the markets. That person was just kidding. Everybody laughed and caught the joke. Everybody smiled, except Henry Ford. He hadn't thought of that, that's true. I am paying an unbelievable amount in transportation costs to the railroads to get my products in and out of the plants and out to the marketplace. And that's the reason why if any of my listeners have the opportunity to travel to the state of Michigan and to travel to the the, the Henry Ford Museum As you're traveling along, you will see these massive, colossal, ugly concrete beams still sticking out of the earth that were once being built to make the electric lines for Henry Ford to be able to transport all of his goods coming in and finished products going out under the flagship of the Henry Ford Railroad Corporation. Henry Ford, up until his death on April 7th, 1947, literally was trying to get the last bit of business requirements totally under the Henry Ford name. So that Henry Ford would not have to negotiate with anybody to build his cars, to bring in the raw materials, or to ship the finished cars out. He wanted to be 100% self-reliant His God intervened and took him before he could realize that reality. So again, that's vertical integration. Owning everything that goes within a car, or in that case, example, a car, but everything that goes in a product. Again, therein lies. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no laws against that. Horizontal integration, that is illegal. And an easy way to remember why horizontal integration is illegal is because the easy way to remember it is because of the one way that you can play horizontal integration legally, being able to earn an inordinate amount of money and enjoy yourself at the same time as you throw the dice in the middle of your game board of the game called monopoly. Horizontal integration is a fancy way of saying monopoly. Henry Ford can build and buy everything that goes into his cars, but the law will not allow Henry Ford to reach out to Walter P. Chrysler and buy his automobile manufacturing line and then go to the Dodge brothers and go to David Buick and go to Louis Chevrolet and go to Fred and August Duesenberg and the Packard brothers and pick up their cars. Nope. That, the law says, the Sherman Antitrust Act says that you cannot do. And that is, as I say, is a monopoly. So what's the difference? Henry Ford buying everything that goes into his car, he still has an obligation to try to price his cars as competitively as possible. Otherwise, if they're too high priced, the American marketplace won't purchase them. He has to face competition. When his cars are out there, he has to understand that they're out there next to Walter Chrysler's, next to Louis Chevrolet's, on and on. But what if Henry Ford could purchase all of those car manufacturers? Where then is the competition? What's to keep Henry Ford from keeping his prices competitive? He could raise his prices as much as he wanted to, and there would be no ramifications for that. That goes against the grain of capitalism whose common denominator is the consumer's choice. That Henry Ford was forced to competitively price his cars because of competition. If he owned the competition, there would be nothing to lower the prices for. And that sadly is what came, took place, not with Ford himself, but with one of the other millionaires of the age, John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller routinely swallowed up competitor oil refineries in order to refine his products to the point and start building gas stations that if a competitor opened up down the street, Rockefeller would lower his prices so low that he would actually be losing money. But because he owned so many gas stations and so many refineries, his loss would never be felt by him or his company. But eventually, and not long at all, very, very quickly, the new competitor down the street had to lower his prices in order to stay competitive. But because they only have one or maybe two gas stations, they can't afford to lose to lower it anymore without losing money. So, of course, Rockefeller put him out of business by keeping the prices too low. And then he bought up the properties at fire bargain sales because, of course, the the business owner went into foreclosure. Now Rockefeller was richer than he had been before, but at the expense of consumers. Because if he found out or when he found out that people in the local town of XYZ in the United States was actually going to the competitor for a while for their gas or their oil refinery products, Rockefeller would punish them by keeping the prices locally artificially high until he recouped his losses. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why we have antitrust laws in the United States and laws against price fixing and other ideas of the age which we'll talk more about as the podcasts go on. So in this series on the second half of world history. So what we see here, as we discussed in our opening podcast on industry, immigrants and cities within the United States, is we look at the application of electricity. We see the rise of the new corporate strategies of things like vertical and horizontal integration. And if it sounds like I have and been putting a very positive spin on corporate America in these days, I'm not done. Of course, there's going to be the downside of these giant corporations and the massive mistrust that eventually develops. And that's what we will be get back to or continue on with in our seventh podcast in our series on the second half of world history, which I'll begin next time. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great remainder of your day.